Well, good morning, church family. It is wonderful, and I am just so thrilled to be here with you. I am our Daphne campus pastor. If you can't tell, I'm not Chris Bell. So uh, we'll go ahead and get that out of the way like many of us communicators uh, standing in for him do. Uh, But I am honored to have the privilege to continue our series this morning on characters of creation. And this week, we are gonna talk about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Now, the interesting thing about Cain and Abel is that they are, in fact, brothers. They are the first brothers recorded in human history. So, yeah, take that in for just a moment, right? And I don't know about you, but I grew up, and I can remember in early church days hearing this story, and I don't know what it says about me, that I felt like I could relate to it heavily. Uh, I had uh, the first two years of my life on this planet were brotherless, And then came my younger brother, who's two years younger than me. So that gives me 10 years of he and I being brothers before we got another addition to the family. We got the surprise year 12 of my life. And uh, so now I have two brothers and I have a sister. But that first brother, we lived 10 years together on this planet before there was any other added to the mix. And you would think, well, what was your relationship with your brother like? Well, I can be honest with you, it was very contentious. It was very challenging. And in fact, we fought all the time. We argued, we physically fought, and some of the little ones in the room are saying, mom, see, I told you, it's not just me. But listen, I'm not condoning it. I'm saying that was what we did. I didn't know better at that point in time. And being the older brother, it led me to understanding a little bit where Cain's coming from, you know? And I know that may be kind of funny this morning and and kind of ridiculous, but if you've ever been the older sibling and you have that younger sibling, you've thought about it. You know, let's just get that out of the way. And so, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see that the issue this morning isn't just that Cain thought about it. Uh, Spoiler alert, when you turn to Scripture, Scripture kind of gives the spoiler alert right at the top. So the subject of today's passage is going to be very obvious, and we'll dive into that because it's probably one of the most notable things about the relationship between Cain and Abel. But in all honesty, there's so much going on that's deeper here, so much that we can apply to our own lives. Some of you are like, I don't even have a sibling. Doesn't matter. God's going to challenge all of us this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture together. And so we're going to be camped out for the most part in Genesis. Genesis chapter four. So if you brought a Bible with you and you want to make your way there, feel free to do so. As always, we have it included in the notes there for you as well. But in Cain and Abel, we're going to observe crucial lessons on worship and repentance. Crucial lessons on worship and repentance. So in this story, it's much deeper than sin and the, and the issue of a particular sin that Cain commits against his brother. We see deeper lessons being given to us here. And I want to read the story to kind of set up how we're going to approach studying this text together this morning. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, here's what it says. It says, the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions." What I want you to see first and foremost this morning is that sacrificial worship 
to God was established very early in human history. Now, you've probably heard us talk about, especially Pastor Chris, because I've heard him say it several times, and I haven't been on staff that, that long. Um, but sacrificial worship was definitely Old Testament practice. And so we see that all throughout the Old Testament, but we need to remember in this particular example, this is pre-Moses. This is pre-law given to Moses. This is pre-Abraham. This is pre-everybody except Adam and Eve. And so in the very early stories we have of what a relationship of worship looks like with our heavenly father, we see an example of sacrifices being made. Now, some of you are like, well, I didn't bring a dead animal with me this morning and I didn't gather any crop to throw on, on the platform up here. And I'm glad you didn't because that gets really weird, okay? But in all honesty, worship costs us something. Worship costs us something. In fact, all of you sitting in this room right now or even those watching online made the choice to carve out a portion of your weekend to commit it to gathering with other believers in worship and in studying God's word together. You sacrificed a portion of your time. What was amazing to me is I pulled up at 6.40ish this morning in the parking lot. No joke, there's about 40 cars already here. 40 cars already here. And I don't know if you've ever taken that into consideration on a Sunday morning, that that many people get here to make Sunday mornings happen. Those people sacrifice sleep. That's right, yes, they deserve a round of applause. Uh, I, know, I know all of you don't, don't think this, but it's not like coffee magically appears and doors magically get open and this place just looks tidy all the time. You know, uh, it's amazing to me the amount of people that sacrifice their time, their sleep and their energy in order to make our church welcoming and inviting. All of us sacrifice. In fact, some of you, we were just hearing from Pastor Russell about how you can sacrifice financially and give a portion of what God has blessed you with to partner together with us as a church so that we can further our kingdom work. So we all make different sacrifices if you are here with me this morning so we can kind of all rest together on that. But I don't know if any of you have ever traveled overseas, but if you travel to many places around the globe, what we sacrifice by comparison to them when they gather together in worship is mind boggling. For me, that really hit home last year when Jacob Baker, the missions pastor here at our Fairhope campus, uh, and I, we both traveled down to Peru to support and encourage one of our missionaries that we're partnered with down there in that region. And uh, so Jacob and I travel and we find out in preparation for the trip that we're gonna end up at about 15,000 feet elevation, that at night it was gonna be in the 20s, there would be no heat whatsoever and that uh, their worship services took place at night. And in order to get there, we would have to hike a mile in the mountains at 15,000 feet elevation. Now, some of you are like, well, how high is that? Denver's about 5,000, right? Somewhere in the 5,000s mile high city. Is that right? Don't quote me on that, okay? I didn't fact check that one. 15,000 feet is high. It is high up there. And so I was like, I can't walk to the bathroom, let alone a mile to go to worship. But somehow I was like, we figured this out. So they told us, hey, it's at night. It's gonna be in the 20s. You're gonna need to bundle up. There's no heat or air in the worship space. In fact, it's just this tiny room with some wood benches and a sound system. And to get into the room, you have to crawl through this tiny little door. And I kid you not, I was crunched down like this trying to get, and I'm not exaggerating, that crunched down to get through the door. A little claustrophobic. And when I found out all those details, I looked at Jacob and I was like, how bad do you want to go to worship? 
you know, this sounds challenging. And no kidding, we were there for a, a pretty good amount of time. They sang numerous songs. They delivered a message. And I was thinking, I want to praise the Lord, but my fingers are going numb. And I'm worried hypothermia is about to set in. And I was so challenged and convicted and encouraged all at the same time, watching the sacrifice these individuals were willing to make in order to gather together with like-minded believers and worship the Lord. I can get like out of whack if I walk in the room and the thermostat's not set to the temp that I think is ideal, you know? Or they, they ran out of my coffee creamer flavor, you know? I can just get all discombobulated on Sunday morning and these people are worshiping in environments that sometimes we would choose to just avoid entirely. Worship always costs something. In every example of worship we see in the Bible, worship costs something. But what I also want you to see is that Abel brought his best to God in worship while Cain brought something unacceptable. Now, many people have debated and considered and had conversations about why was Cain's offering accepted and, uh, excuse me, why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's refused? We don't really know, but we can dig into scripture to get a little bit more clarity on the issue. In Genesis chapter four, verses four and five, here's what it says. It says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his, and his offering, or he accepted it, he had regard for it, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Now, I gotta be honest with you, as I studied this passage of scripture and was preparing to teach it this morning, I reflected back on teenager me. Because teenager me, anytime I didn't get my way, became furious and looked despondent. Despondent, just so you know, means pouty, downcast, face drooping, moping, all right? And teenager me, man, that was me all day long. Parents would say something, I wouldn't like it. I'd immediately burst into frustration and immediately look downcast and mopey and pouting, right? And some of you teenagers in the room were like, hey, ease up a little bit. No, I'm just talking about me. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. That carried on into adulthood, and it, sometimes it still flares up, if I'm going to be honest with you. But here's what I've learned over the years. It is a sign of immaturity when we are confronted with sin issues that we have in our life, and our immediate response is to become furious and mopey. That's lack of maturity. Now, I'm not telling you it's easy, I'm not telling you when you get challenged or confronted with sin issues in your life that you should just be comfortable with that. But we see major immaturity in Cain's life. It does make me question how old was Cain, how old was Abel in this particular account that we're given about their lives. You don't see a lot of wisdom and maturity reflected in Cain and how he acts. And yes, that is an issue of the heart, but I also wonder how many things were going on in his life. What struggles existed within him? I'm not making excuses or condoning any of that, but I think it needs to be considered as we look at this because it's easy for us to raise Abel up to celebrate who he was and to demonize who Cain is. But we really don't know what all the issues were going on with Abel and Cain and their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. 
But Hebrews 11 verse four gives us an insight into what made Abel's offering acceptable to God. And in Hebrews chapter 11 verse four, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. See, Abel's recorded in the hall of faith that we like to call that section in Hebrews that just lists out incredible people of faith and why they were considered incredible people of faith. Hebrews 11 just records many of those. Abel is one of the earliest accounts we have of someone deemed incredibly faithful. His faithfulness, the Bible tells us, is what ultimately resulted in his righteousness. Now, how could that be? Faith and righteousness is hand in hand. Faith and righteousness go together. See, faith to the level that I have to have it in order to deal with sin in my life is faith to the extent that I actually take in God's word, I give it supreme authority over my life, and I submit my will or my, desire, my, my desires or my preferences to the will of God. So that is the level of faith Abel had. See, one of the things that we need to understand is that Abel was not perfect, but he gives us an example of faith and repentance. See, Abel was a fallen human being just like everybody else. All human beings that have ever walked the earth except for Jesus are fallen and sinful creatures. Abel was too. So let's not get it mixed up this morning and think Abel was perfect and Cain was just messed up. No, Abel was flawed as well. Abel would have sinned against God. Abel would have fallen short of God's glorious standard. It's interesting to even note that Abel, to be such a good example as he was, no words that he ever spoke were recorded in scripture. And yet we can raise him up and celebrate him and miss the fact that he indeed was sinful just like the rest of us. But he gives us an example of the faith that would produce repentance in his life. We, we can focus on the fact that God is going to confront Cain and the issues in Cain's heart, but Abel most likely went through some of these same confrontations with God. Scripture doesn't go into detail about that, but if Abel is flawed, mistakes are made, and he deals with sin just like the rest of us, then the difference would have been when confronted by his parents or when confronted by God or when confronted by conviction, he dealt with the sin by repenting of it because his faith was so strong that it produced repentance. Cain, that is not the case. But what we will see is this, God patiently offers us a way out of sin through the doorway of repentance. God patiently offers us a way out of sin through the doorway of repentance. I want you to look at the next couple of verses with me in Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7. It says, Then Lord said to, excuse me, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, God implies that Cain has every resource needed at his disposal. Every tool in the toolbox he needs to deal with sin 
is available to him. God is in fellowship with Cain. God has a relationship with Cain. God is speaking directly to Cain. And he says, sin is at your door and it's ready to eat you, consume you, and devour you. But you must rule over it. That is a command and instruction given by God to Cain. Now I wanna share with you for just a moment and you'll have to deal with my basic illustration ability here, but I'm gonna share with you a little drawing and I wanna give you permission this morning to doodle in your notes. That's right, I said doodle. And I want you to draw four circles in your notes, very similar to what I have on the screen here. So grab that pen, take a little blank space there and make four circles. Now, there's a difference you need to make between what I'm showing you and what you need to draw in your notes, all right? Four circles, get them as far apart in a line on your notes as you can and make the line connecting them, three lines, Make the line connecting them as long as you can and still fit it on your notes, all right? So your timeline should be a little more spanned out than mine, but mine, for the sake of you being able to see it in the audience, needed to stay about compacted like this, okay? And in each circle, I do want you to write these letters. No, it does not make a word. I'm not that clever or crafty. I'm just teaching you something God taught me years ago. So in the first circle, you're gonna write the letter S, and it stands for sin. It represents sin. So this is simply a timeline of events that we're gonna talk about that exist in the life of a believer. Sin occurs. We make a mistake. No matter who you are in this room, you have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. No matter who you are, that probably happened this morning already as you were trying to get your family out the door for church. Let's be honest. Sin happens in the life of the believer. However, there's a little period of time that exists. And this period of time is the gap between when the sin is committed and you would wonder, what does the letter C stand for, Jonathan? Please tell me. It stands for confessing or getting caught. Mm. See, some of y'all, we only get the godly side of that and we say, oh, you confess your sins. Some of y'all get caught. We've all been there. We've all done that. Again, teenager me, I just got, I have, the, I have flashbacks, you know? You either confess sin or you get caught. God's gonna reveal the sin. Scripture makes that repeatedly clear over and over again that God will expose darkness to light. Sin will be exposed. So the timeline between sin and either getting caught or confessing is represented by the little black line. The next little black line is the time between when you get caught and you confess and when you actually repent. See, you can get caught and feel sorry or you can confess your sins to God in privacy and still leave it undealt with. You can still refuse to repent of the sin and turn from it and to make adjustments that need to be made in your life. So there's a period of time that exists between when you get caught or you confess and when you actually repent and deal with the sin. The final is T, and that is when it becomes part of your testimony. See, when we sin and we fall short of God's glorious standard and we confess it and time goes by and we repent, and then ultimately we get to a place of healing and restoration and redemption where God has brought us through that fiery trial and we have dealt with the sin and we have victory over it, we can include it as part of our testimony. Now, I'm gonna take this away and hopefully you've got it in your notes now to look at, but here's what I will tell you reveals a lack of maturity. A lack of maturity is the sin is committed and I hide it or I condone it or I excuse it or I turn a blind eye to it for a long period of time and I go a long time before I get caught or confess. I try to cover up the sin for as long as I possibly can. So you have that period of time. Immaturity is, there's a huge gap there. 
You've made a mistake. The sins are being repeated. The sins are happening. You're not dealing with it. You're not confronting it. You're not convicted of it like you need to be. And so the sin occurs, but there's a gap that exists between you confessing it and getting caught. Then when that occurs, we can respond like Cain did. We get confronted. God is gonna call him out about the sin that exists in his life, but he does not make an adjustment and move in the direction of repentance. In fact, we'll see he responds with even more sin in just a moment. We'll talk about that. But in between getting caught and confessing and repenting, there's an extended period of time if we're not careful. If we are an immature follower of Christ, we will try to extend that out as, possible, as long as we possibly can. And then because we extend out those things, there's been a long period of time that sin's been happening and gone undealt with in my life. There's a long period of time that even though I got caught doing it, I've tried to condone it or I tried to hide it or tried to do whatever, I haven't repented of it. That's now another long period of time. And as a result, it takes it forever once I finally repent for people to trust me, for me to rebuild confidence, for me to experience restoration and redemption. It takes a long period of healing after I repent. And as a result, it's gonna be a while before I can include that as part of my testimony. If that takes a long time, if those lines between those circles are extended out for long periods of time in our lives, that is a reflection of immaturity in us as Christ followers. Maturity looks like this. We compress that timeline down as, as, as close to each other as we possibly can. Maturity is, I made a mistake, I'm gonna immediately confess, I'm gonna immediately repent, and I'm gonna immediately help someone else that's in that same struggle. As parents, you have to do that quick, right? Uh, your, your kids, if you raise them as believers, they get really good at confronting sin in your life. In fact, I'm gonna share a story about that in just a moment. But you get quick. You're like, hey, if I'm gonna set a good example of what it looks like to be a Christ follower, I better own my sin, deal with my sin, repent of my sin, and start teaching them to not do what I just did. In adulthood, in parenthood, we find ourselves doing that repeatedly. Great parents condense that timeline down. Great followers of Christ condense that timeline down. We try to make it where when we make mistakes that are going to happen, we deal with them correctly. Here's what I want you to understand. God creates moments where we will be confronted by the sin in our lives. God creates moments where we will be confronted by the sin in our lives. This looks different for every person. Uh, it can be big things, it can be little things, but God will give you things that confront you and the sin that exists in your life. For me, it happened one day when I was driving down the road with my two boys in our back seat. I have a six-year-old, no, he's almost six, fixing to be six-year-old and a four-year-old. And uh, they're riding in the back seat behind me and this was about a year ago, so we're driving down the road. And I, at the time, I had developed this habit in our family dialogue that was this running joke that I used all the time. And so I don't know if you are uh, a parent that ever gets fielded with questions by your little ones, but you have to get creative in how to avoid answering those questions. You know, sometimes you're just not gonna answer it, let's be honest. And so my deflection method became, I would joke with them and they would ask a question, for instance, hey, uh, can we go over to so-and-so's house? And I would say, no, because they don't like you anymore. And you're like, oh, that's so mean. It was done in a funny way. My kids knew I was joking. It was said, you know, sarcastically. And every time my kids knew like, oh, you're being funny. So uh, they got in this habit of I would say it and they would go, no, seriously, tell us why. And they would say, why can't we go over there and play with our friend? Well, I would say, they just don't like you anymore. You know, or why can't we go to church on Wednesday night? Well, church doesn't like you anymore, you know? And they would be like, oh, you know, and so offended and so upset by that. And then all of a sudden, 
One day we're riding down the road and I had decided in our family to start implementing among my young men that I'm raising some godly principles that I wanted them to implement in their lives. And I was teaching them what it meant to be a man of God. And we're riding down the road one day and I said, uh, or or my, my oldest said, hey, can we go get a Happy Meal? And I said, no, because McDonald's doesn't like y'all anymore. And he immediately said, Papa, as a man of God, you shouldn't tell fibs. (laughs) And that, ladies and gentlemen, is when the student became the teacher, you know? No, I mean, it was the craziest thing because I was like, but it's just a joke and it's just sarcasm and it's just me being funny and uh, I got no good reason to justify why I'm lying to my kids all the time. Truth be told, most people like my kids. It's me they got the problem with, you know? And so in all honesty, I had to turn around and say, you know what, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Because now I was reflecting what it looked like to be a Christ follower and my son was taking notes. Hey, if it's funny enough, can we just lie then? Or, you know, hey, if it's, you know, just to deflect a question, can we lie then? In his brain, he's processing that information. He's trying to determine how is he gonna act as a godly man? And so from that point on, I kid you not, I quit. I would love to tell you I was perfect at it, but at times it would still creep into conversations. But overall, in our family, it became something that stopped almost altogether, where I would not use that phrase that I'd become so accustomed to in deflecting questions that they would ask me that I didn't wanna deal with or tolerate for the moment. I had to learn that I was setting an example for my little boys and that they were paying attention even in the moments when I thought I was being funny. Cain is confronted by God. God asks him questions, not because God needs to know the answers to these questions, but because he wants Cain to wrestle with what are the answers to these questions. He asks them and says, where is your brother? Where is your brother? I want you to read this with me. He says in Genesis chapter four, verses eight through 10, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while there, while they were in that field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian or my brother's keeper? In verse 10, it says, then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What have you done? He makes Cain process the answers to those questions. Cain, who was confronted by God with a heart that needed to be addressed and sin issues that needed to be resolved, decides his best course of action to deal with sin is to add more sin into the equation. You would think murdering his brother was probably severe enough Did he stop there. I want you to remember and focus on the fact that even after killing his brother, when God walked up to him and said, where is your brother? He responds, with a lie and says, I don't know. See, the lies just compound, the sin just compounds on itself. And we see Cain setting an example of what it looks like to fall into sin repeatedly instead of repenting and turning to God. See, what we ultimately see in Cain is this, and I want you to write this down. In Cain, we also see how inadequate it is to have only sorrow without repentance. See, Cain is so self-absorbed that even when confronted by God, he responds, and I want you to look at Genesis 4, verses 11 through 16 in just a moment, but you'll see that, that he is sorry to some degree. 
He's sad, he's mopey, he's downcast. He's got all these emotions that are at play in his life, but you will not see repentance in Cain at all. Genesis chapter four, verses 11 through 16 says, so now you are cursed, this is God speaking to Cain, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Oh, he's pitiful. I mean, look at this poor, pitiful guy. It's getting cast out and gonna have to live by himself and he's not gonna be able to farm anymore. You know, he's, he's just a sad, sad guy. But that sadness, that sorrow didn't lead to repentance at all. Paul talks about what this looks like for the believer in the New Testament when he writes to the believers at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses nine through 10, it's there in your notes. He says, I now rejoice, Paul writes, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Feel sorry all you want. If you don't repent, the sin's not gonna get dealt with and sin leads to death every time. So feel sorry about it and condone your sin and cover it up and repeatedly be a sin offender of the same issue and watch things die in your life. Or repent and it will lead to salvation. See, repentance is challenging. Repentance is difficult. Repentance means that we have to inconvenience ourselves. It, it means that we have to expose the sin that exists in our lives. It means we have to get uncomfortable. It means we have to build in accountability into our lives. We need to bring people in so that we can be transparent and be held accountable for our sins. But we also need to remember that it's important to sometimes burn the ships. And it's just simply a phrase that means whatever is your temptation that you constantly fall into, whatever is the issue that you struggle with most, figure out a way to destroy your avenue to access that temptation. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Drastic measures are required in order to see repentance truly take place in our lives and I'll leave you with this last point and I wanna share a passage of scripture with you. So keep your notes open so that you can read this with me. But the last thing I want you to see this morning is that only when our faith produces repentance can we truly find ourselves living in fellowship with God. You can believe in Jesus, you can believe in God, but if you wanna be in fellowship with God, scripture makes it clear that repentance is key. First John where the apostle writes encouragement to other believers. He addresses this issue of repentance in the life of a believer. And he says these words, and I wanna read them to you this morning because I think it's a beautiful picture of how sin is to be dealt with in our lives. 
First John chapter one, verses five through 10 says, this is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you, God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin or in essence, we're perfect, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Church, I don't care if you've been a believer for a day or 50 years. I don't care if you walked in this room this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. My prayer is that today you would do that for the very first time because the truth is we all have to start today in the same place. If you've never given your life to Christ, the Bible tells us to repent and believe upon him for salvation and we will be saved. So today you can repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. But for those of you in the room that have been followers of Christ for any period of time, we still have sin to battle. We still have temptation to deal with. And so today we're gonna have a time of response where you get to go to God either in prayer or in worship and deal with whatever sin you're struggling with. No matter how minor or major you see it, God sees it as something that needs to be dealt with. I wanna pray for you and then we're gonna have a time of response. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the example that you set in Cain of what it looks like if we don't handle this correctly. But God, I pray that we would learn and apply truth to our lives so that we can respond to you with a posture of repentance so that we can handle the sin that is crouched at the door, ready to devour us. God, we ask all this in your son Jesus' name, amen.